This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Great to see you. You all got very quiet very quickly. You're very disciplined. <laughs> so thank you. And I'm Steve Corral. I'm the Dean of the Graduate School of Management here at UC Davis, and I'm thrilled to have you all with us tonight for our Dean's Distinguished Speaker event with Edward Jew. So I'll just say a few words of introduction now, and then uh, we'll begin uh, in a moment with uh, Edward. So I wanted to mention a few of my colleagues here who are here with us tonight from uh, UC Davis. And um, one, for example, is Professor Jeff Gibling, who's Vice Provost of Graduate Education and Dean of Graduate Studies. Jeff, thank you for coming. Professor Bill Lacey, Vice Provost of the University Outreach and International Programs. Professor Bruno Nochtergale, who is Chair of the Academic Senate. Susan Gilbert, Associate Vice Chancellor of Human Resources, and Sharon Shoemaker is here with us uh, as well, who's head of CIFAR in the College of Ag and Environmental Sciences. So let's give them a round of applause, shall we, for welcome them. And we have some uh, additional friends and colleagues from Chic. Um, and they are Julia Jung, Senior Project Manager at Chic, Desmond Lee, Lei Yi, and Daniel Huang, all of Chic. So shall we welcome them as well? If you're wondering where Chic is, I'm going to tell you in just a few minutes, okay? So, um, so I'd like to take just a few minutes now and give you a brief update on some of the developments in the graduate school uh, management. We continue to be recognized as one of the best business schools in the world. Most recently, we were the fastest rising business school in the United States in the Forbes magazine ranking. Uh, We were very happy this year to jump up 22 spots on the Forbes ranking, which uh, shows, uh, which directly reflects the return on investment of our students. So we're very proud of of that ranking. For the second straight year, The Economist magazine has ranked us number one in terms of the diversity of recruiters who come to the Graduate School of Management. And um, we continue to, be, to, to expand our academic programs as well. We're now educating more business students than ever in the Graduate School of Management. We're now educating more than 560 students. That's comprised of 520 MBA students here in Davis, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in San Ramon, and in Sacramento. And last autumn, we welcomed the uh, second class of our master's degree in professional accountancy, a class of 39 students, uh, so we're really delighted to have that program off and running as well. We're seeing an increase in our uh, grant funding in the Graduate School of Management. So last year, we won or partnered with another university uh, unit to uh, secure $2.4 million in research grants. That's a 332% increase over the previous year. And since 2009, we've had a 164% increase in our extramural funding in the Graduate School of Management. Our Executive Education Unit recently made history with a first-of-its-kind agribusiness program in China last November, and I'll say more about that in, in just a moment. 
So there's just a few examples of what's happening in the graduate school of management, and uh, we urge you to spread the good word to all your friends and colleagues about the developments here in the GSM. So it's now my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Edward Jew. Edward is a visionary with more than 20 years of global experience, including being an entrepreneur, a leader, a financier, an investor, a supply chain management expert, and the founder and chief executive of the Sheik Group. Edward, I just get tired listing out all the things you've done, actually. So if you know Edward, he has extraordinary energy, and I think uh, that will be conveyed in his uh, remarks here in a few minutes. Last November, as I mentioned a minute ago, the GSM made history by partnering with Edward and the Sheik Knowledge Center of Excellence to launch our Global CEO Entrepreneur Agribusiness Symposium Series in Shanghai. Our goal is to develop, to develop a further, more sustainable and quality-driven global agricultural industry in China. The title of the program in November was Growing Agribusiness in China, Scaling Up and Staying Fresh. It was a three-day program, and we were delighted to host over 80 entrepreneurs, CEOs, and governmental uh, representatives for this program. And the workshops were led by UC Davis faculty, such as uh, Colin Carter. So is Colin... Oh, he had to go, all right, probably another trip to China or something like that, <laughs> okay. Uh, but we really enjoy our, our partnership with uh, Colin. We also had speaking at the event other global energy or, or agribusiness experts such as Charlie Sweat uh, and others, so we were delighted to have them uh, on, on the program. The program was such a success that we're continuing an ongoing series in, in, in China. Coming back to Sheik, a little bit of history. Established in Shanghai in 1996, the Sheik Group today is a global company with over 10,000 employees worldwide. From its humble beginnings as a freight forwarding and logistics company, it's grown and evolved into a diversified conglomerate with subsidiaries in sectors such as food, agriculture, home and garden products, medical equipment, supply chain management solutions, and integrated rural urbanization development. With management and leadership experience in the U.S. and China, Edward has built the Sheet Group into a leading-edge company with clients all over the world, including companies such as Del Monte, Heinz, Spectrum Brands, and Yum!, in 2012, the Sheet Group signed an historic agreement with UNESCO to form the Biosphere Integrated Rural Urbanization Community Investment and Development Project. Edward has been featured numerous times in both Chinese and international media for his successes in various sectors. He was invited to Summer Davos for the third year to lead discussions on, for example, creating the future economics, the future of the rural economy, and China turning into a nation of consumption. Edward holds an executive MBA with honors from the China Europe International Business School, and he's also a frequent guest lecturer there and serves on the advisory board for CEIBS. In 2009, Edward won the Outstanding Contribution Award at CEIBS. 
the Distinguished Alumnus Award, and the Best CEIBS Alumnus of the Year in 2011. Please join me in welcoming Edward Jew. Thank you very much. It has been my honor to be distinguished speaker here for this event, and I hope that after my speech you still call me distinguished because this is given by Steve at the moment. Uh, I hope I'm not going to disappoint you. The one thing I ask your uh, permission that if uh, because this, this presentation normally takes about half a day, and now we only have about uh, 30 minutes or 45 minutes, so I hope that I do not run over my time. So um, I will try to manage that. So please be patient with me. So um, my presentation today, uh, the title is called Open Innovation Around the Global Business with China. Innovation in terms of open or closed or direct innovation. So my topic is very much about open innovation instead of the innovation which is closed or direct. And, and then uh, we will talk about around the global business, mean, meaning it's not all about China. And China is the place that these innovation uh, examples that I'm making is, happens in China. So, so I will use these couple of examples to show that why this innovation is around China, is related to China, and it's a global business. So uh, the content, will, I will organize my speech in three parts. One is a little bit introduction of Xi Group, and then we're looking at making innovation work in China, and then we'll use the real case studies of this coconut water uh, to be the real case study, is looking at an, a real example of uh, open innovation that we have been uh, implementing in China. Uh, she Group is a company, is positioned as a SEMIS company, and when we say SEMIS is, uh, S is solution, so when we approach a problem or issue, that we always try to come up with a solution, that a solution is for value, and it is a investment. We normally do investment is very much leveraged. For example, this technology is a uh, is a technology we are leveraging in getting into this investment around the world. So when we go acquire companies, we do not pay any money. We acquire companies fifty one percent of the shares of the company without paying any money. So that's the way that we do business, and I also teach EVA. Uh, I don't know whether you understand uh, economic value added is the, is the model that's basically you try to use other people's money to do your business. So that's the concept that we have. And the management company is, uh, is, is the position that we have. We actually do not produce anything because this is not produced by us. This is produced by our partners. It's, uh, all the products that we are shipping over to the United States under the Armani label today is all produced by our partners, not by us, but we do have ownership of our partners. But we never paid anything to get the ownership of the partnership in place. And innovation is a very important uh, part of our business. Uh, we survive because we innovate. Uh, that's basically is the soul and uh, the bottom of, of, of this company. And service company, of course, uh, we provide services all around the world. So our position is a semis company, and normally people do not use that as a position, and we do. As, as a, a company, is very different. And this company, as I said, is, a, is a, Steve introduced, is about 10,000 employees in place, and the integrated rural 
integrate supply chain management solution and execution is the soul and the foundation of the company, including this integrated rural urbanization project that we're doing in China is a solution based on we as a supply chain company, even we get into a real estate business. Uh, this campus in Shanghai is representative of being an innovation company, as of being an open innovation company, because the campus is designed by the same designer who designed a Google campus in the United States here. And what we wanted to do is to have these three sections. One is IND Center, which is an open innovation IND Center, where we bring Coca-Cola, Del Monte, Heinz, and these companies to work with us, work on IP of a product, and then the IP will be shared among companies that we work together. And then here you have the Knowledge Center of Excellence, this Knowledge Center of Excellence is a training place, is a seminar training, is a school, is a business education school, executive training school. And, and then this IND Center is very representative for uh, uh, being an innovation and center in China, but it's open. So making innovation work in China uh, is very difficult. It's not that easy uh, because you often cannot easily find talents in China for innovation. China is a place you always call China is a copycat. So people copy each other, and once you have something new, that the first thing you need to think about is how can you stop being copied? So that's what I call it. You need to have your moat to be built around you. The moat meaning is a place that where you put the crocodiles in it, you put poison in it, and then people cannot easily get to you. So, so you need to create that barrier of entry. So that's uh, not difficult in China to make innovation work. So I have three questions to you, then I, we will answer the three questions. First question is, why cannot companies develop strong, effective innovation? Most companies in China cannot do that, and a lot of companies even in the world cannot really do it. Well, the Silicon Valley is quite different, but then this is a question to you. Second one is, is, why do companies find it so hard to sustain the robust levels of innovation? And the third question is, how do leaders create meaningful levels of innovation? So these are the three questions I would like to carry while we're going through this presentation. Well, innovation often starts with ideation, comes from somewhere in the company, or even on the corridor that you walk into somebody, somebody tells you an idea. One idea that we got is about this technology. It's called high-pressure, super-high-pressure processing technology. Now today you are looking at it as a product. It's a coconut water, which is a raw coconut water with the four months of shelf life without any cooking in it. The first idea I got it from a research scientist from our lab. And he came over to me and said, uh, Edward, we have a new technology now coming, and I would like to have your attention. This technology is very good to bring down our costs on processing. Because when we were producing uh, these thermally processed product, we used a lot of energy. You use steam and use temperature to cook these products in order to sterilize, in order to pasteurize these products. So he said to me, he said, uh, I have a new technology. This technology will be very good to reduce down the cost of cooking because the energy will be served, saved and steam is less used. 
I looked at the product. I said, wow, uh, that's a very good product that he brought over to me. It's non-cooked. And then if I then started innovation based on what he suggests to do, the outcome would be totally different because he's looking at a cost-saving technology, but then it ended up with a new product technology. It's a total revolutionary change in the industry by looking at a new product coming out. So innovation really uh, starts with business strategy. Innovation is, cannot start with just an idea and then you start to act on that. You have to really think about what is your business goal. What is your business goal determines what is your innovation strategy and goal. So innovation really originates from business strategy. You need to think about what is your business strategy. Sheik's business strategy is always trying to look at how can we make a product fresh, fresher, and freshier. All the time we're looking at that. It's not just only looking at the cost saving, but you need to look outside of the box and how can you make a product fresh, offer a value proposition to the consumers that's in place. This tells you that how, do you, how you innovate determines what you innovate. So the business strategy is the most important thing for you to think of. But then after you, have a, you understand what is your business strategy and your business goal, then you want to see that how do you align your business strategy and goal together with innovation strategy and goal. In between, what brings them together is the insight about the consumers, customers, what is the value proposition, what is the consumer benefits to your customer and consumers. Maybe sometimes you have a B2B business, your customer is a customer, is a company, but you still need to think about what is the consumers that they serve. End of the day, every product is serving the end consumers. You need to think, what is the demand, unmet demand in the marketplace to the consumers, which is the customer of the customer. So you need to think about the business model. What is the business model in between these two? And a product and service, not only just a product. People always think about innovation, about their product. But it's more than that. It's just not only product, but it's service, supply chain management, and it's looking at business models as well. So then you look at the regulations and past, what is your environment for innovation, and look at what is your operation in there. So this is the business insight in place, where you can then tie these business goals and strategies together with innovation goals and strategy. Now, these insights, uh, I raise these questions to see how, where do we focus innovation efforts? Uh, what is your business strategy? Uh, where are you going for? So these are the questions you always want to ask, and how much innovation you want to put in place. If you put too much innovation in place, probably sometimes you're too early in the industry to do something, and that does not really bring you revenue quick enough to cover your SGNA because innovation costs money. And then you also need to look at what is types of innovation, types of innovation that we need. In Sheik, we have a lot of innovations in place. Uh, some of our focus is looking at a lot of innovation, a lot of technologies really 10 years later. So I ask them to put aside that we have people who are looking at long-term innovation. We also have people looking at short-term innovation, which is commercialization. What I see is that you have to both. You have to do all of this at one time, but you have to really allocate your resources around this. So again, is how do you innovate determines what you 
innovate. The strategic blueprints bridges the innovation strategy. Uh, you look at these two. Uh, how do you bridge that together? I have this framework to bring your attention to this, is looking at what is the strategic blueprint, where what are you looking for? Are you looking for incremental value proposition, or are you looking at a radical change, which is a game changer? So you need to look at the technology change, and you're also looking at a new business model change. If you want to have the radical change in place, you need to have both. But it really depends on where you are and where you're going for. This product is a product that you're looking at. Is this plastic cup on the Del Monte label sold in the United States here? It's not a radical change. This is a techno technology change. It's a packaging change. This is simply putting the manual oranges here from canned to a plastic. So it's just basically looking at a packaging innovation. It's not a radical. But then this product is a product which is a very radical change. It's not just only a technology change, but it's also a new business model change. And there are about the six levers that I always look at to look at how do you do innovation. These six levers, as I group them into business model innovation or technology innovation. And then, then you look at, uh, on the technology innovation, you look at the product and services, process and technologies, and then looking at the supporting technologies as well. But on the other side, you're looking at a business model innovation is a value proposition towards the consumers and the customers. You look at the value network and a target customer. So these are the questions that seem in place. If I put our, the, the blueprint of our portfolio products is in place, that you can see these plastic cups is very much on the breakthrough. But this coconut water is really a, a game changer. The reason of that is because I'm, I'm going to get into more detail in this because these frameworks are telling you where you are going into. Are you looking for radical change or are, look, are you looking for a breakthrough? But in Chic, we have to do all of that because we have to survive. We cannot just looking at this radical change, game change in place because this took us 10 years to arrive today. If we cannot survive from 10 years before up to today, if every year we cannot survive, we won't be able to launch this product today. So that's why we need to manage that in the short term, mid term, and long term. So I'm looking at in the mid term is more of a breakthrough. And in the short term is very incremental changes. The incremental changes can be cost saving, can be pesticide control and get a better position, can be quality QA and QC on the floor, these are the new things that you do. So it's really the blood of innovation in place that the whole company has got to have this culture in place to have innovation. So the outcome, outcome can be different when you look at the different di dimensions in place for innovation. When we look at these technology innovation, we ask questions about product and service. We look at what product and service should, be, should the company offer in the marketplace. This is a question you always ask. But how do you do that is another question. So it's a performance packaging integral to the consumers and customers is around this question about product and service. And to look at, you, can, you should also look at the process technologies. Processing technologies probably is reducing the cost. It's like our scientists came over to me and said, that, you know, you have, we have a process, new processing technology come in and it can reduce the cost. So that's reducing the cost or improve the quality 
But this is very much related to manufacturing assembly and service delivery, which is very important that you always look at cost savings all the time in a, in a business. The cost saving, for example, the cost saving in the last three years, that if we didn't do it, I wouldn't be able to survive because uh, all the things changed in China, ex- exchange rate change uh, is really in, not in favor of us. 27% of exchange rate change. IMB went up about 27%. Labor costs went up about double. And borrowing costs also went up about double. So you look at that, is these are all the business environment in place. This is really giving us a lot of hard time. And then you have to really do cost savings on a day-to-day basis. And management has to manage that. And it's looking at the supporting technologies. Is for example, the inventory and the quality control. It's about information. It's about how can you deliver your product with a low capital cost in place. If you look at the balance sheets of Walmart today, you look at the, the inventory sitting on a Walmart's balance sheet, you look at the, what is the capital cost that's on balance sheets of the, the products of Walmart, and compared to an inventory sitting on the supplies of Walmart in China, the two costs of capital is totally different because the base is different. Why cannot you think about how can we shift the inventory of a Walmart to the Chinese suppliers is in the way that Walmart carries no inventory, but Walmart will pay for the cost of inventory in China. That's a huge saving. That's a billions of dollars of saving. This is just an example of supply chain management in place that you look at these supporting technologies in place, which is also innovation. And on a business model change, you either look at the value proposition, you're looking at the what do you deliver as a value. Uh, so you ask questions around about how can you create value to the customer and consumers. And then you do ask these questions. What value do customers want? What value do customers really care about that you deliver into the marketplace? And you're looking at the value network, which is a how, meaning how do you deliver these uh, value proposition in place. For example, the supply chain, how do you change the supply chain side? How do you look at the ecosystem of the value offering? These are all the things that you need to ask about business model change. And the last one is the target customer. Who is your target customer? Sometimes that you really need to be careful about when you aim towards your target customer. Sometimes you're, you ended up with a, a group of new customers which is your, not your target customers, which is based on very much on this business model change. If you have a business model change, you have a new set of customers, which probably is much bigger size of a market. So these are the questions that you, you ask, and then you need to look at that. How do you use these levers in place to do? Most of the time, people stuck in the rut using the same levers. And what levers do we normally use? Is always products. Service, you're always looking at product service side. When you talk about innovation, people are always looking at innovation about the product or some to do with the service. Often, what is neglected is the target customer's redefining. As I said, how do you redefine a customer? If you redefine a customer, probably your market is much bigger. The size is much bigger for you to serve. And people are not really very much looking at the supporting technologies. For example, IT technologies. It's in China, things are changing so fast. The market channel really changed from a traditional channel to e-commerce. That you may not understand the Chinese today 
are buying more products from e-commerce than the traditional channel, especially the people born after 1985. This is the trend is going on that you may not understand that. You're looking at China in the future. E-commerce is going to replace traditional channel, and this is a very important phenomenon. If you are in China and doing business without understanding that, you will be left behind. It's very important looking at that. And then, and sometimes you also neglect the value proposition side and supply chain value network. So these are the areas people often neglect when they do innovation. They do not look around about all of these other levers, but they're more looking at product service and process technologies. Process technology is more of looking at a cost saving, cost saving and cost saving, but then product and service is looking at it. We have a new product coming in, but sometimes that new product doesn't really matter that you have a new product because you are serving a wrong group of people. So innovation, you really need to think out of box. So innovation operational model also has to change, which is strategically aligned with innovation strategy and goals. Management has to do so much in there to have these two fit. Now, operational model that I look at that is two, one is directed, which is closed, and the other one is open. So the reason I, I compare these two, they are so different. One is looking for steady revenue and margin. The other one is looking at significantly grow the revenues and margins. We're looking at this coconut water and we are looking at a business to come in the next five to eight years of about $6 billion of business on this coconut water. Six billion US dollars. And this business has been growing in the last five years in the United States. Every year is doubling, doubling, doubling. And in the next five years, we see this market double. It's not a passing fad. It's not come and go. It's a, it, this is a product will stay in the marketplace. If you research on coconut water, that you will know that why this is a product that is flying so high, because this is acetonic water. Scientists have said to me, this is giving you five years more of life if you drink this coconut water on a daily basis. This is why in the Bay Area, how many people you drink coconut water today? Can you raise, you see so many people, you see, in there. And the knowledge is getting disseminated among the consumers. There's more and more consumers getting into this. But today in the marketplace, coconut water is all cooked, all, come from, all coming from concentrated. This product is from raw coconut water. The vision is to have coconut water to replace water or high-end water. If you're looking at only 10% of a high-end water market for us to targeting, you have that business of $6 billion. But if you go after a juice market, say this is a juice in the U.S. market, the size won't be that big. So this is going, what do you go, where you go uh, as a market? So a radical change as well as an incremental change is totally the business strategy difference, and the innovation goals will be different. Here is you have a surprise, and no surprise is your steady growth, and on the other side, is redefine competitive environments. You create your own market, like this business is really creating a blue sea. There's not much competition in place, and you can charge a higher price, and the margin is high, but the size is big. And then one is to play to lose, play not to lose, and the other one is to play to win, and win, and win, there's always win in there. And the innovation portfolio is different, mostly 
on the direct innovation is mostly incremental innovations. Change a little bit, change a little bit, and you get a little bit more of a profit. But in here is mostly breakthrough with support from the incremental innovations. So it's a breakthrough. And the last one is you're looking at we do more with less. Standard technology, co-development, limited collaborations is in place. But on the other side is the blue sky. They create extraordinary value and it's open innovation and collaboration. What is open innovation and collaboration? Open innovation and collaboration is not just to only look at yourself. You cannot do innovation by looking at yourself, your own R&D in place. So your target market is very clear that you're going after your target market. Well, in, this, in Sheik's case, if we do innovation towards our target market, that's a canned product. Dalmani was in the canned product business. When we started business with Dalmani, it was a canned 15-ounce or 8-ounce product. We shifted the business from canned to plastic. We are shipping today 10,000 containers to the United States, to Dalmani alone. But the Dalmani business total alone by that time, all canned product together is less than 800 containers total. The time when we started business, Dalmani's man and orange business in, in, in the world is only 11 containers. Today is about 5,000 containers. So that's a big uh, change in place. So you really need to look at where's your market. You cannot just focusing on your current market. So the direct innovation is looking at technology innovation, platform and partners is in place, but it's all funneled into one direction. But in the open innovation is your right open, make yourself open. You work with your suppliers, you work with your customers, and you look at the business model innovation, ecosystem, platforms innovation, technology innovation. You're not looking at a product, but you're also looking at a service. You're also looking at other opportunities around the business model change. So it, this funnel becomes an incubator, and it's not only coming out from this direction towards redefine the market, which this bottle of coconut water is a redefined market of us. It's totally different. That it, and I'm telling something, people actually, this is very uh, uh, fresh because this is uh, something that I don't think our competitors are looking at. And I don't mind you go out to talk about this because the winner today is not to share, not only just that they can share their strategy, they have something they are doing that the competitors are not able to do. That's the winner. So I'm telling you my strategy. You can tell other people what is my strategy, but you cannot get around me because I have the moat around me. This is not easy to produce. So this is why you have the barrier, which this is what Buffett is talking about, right? How do you build up the barrier of entries in the way that you do not have a product or service or business you build up is easily to be copied, especially in China, right? So, and then you have your development manager, uh, partners in place, and this channel partners in place, idea partners in place. So this funnel is more open in the way that you're lo not looking at your, not only looking at your current markets, you're looking at adjacent markets, and also the redefined market is all in one place. So innovation is a teamwork. Uh, innovation is not all about yourself. Innovation is a teamwork with the customers, competitors, suppliers, and a lot of uh, brain, brainy X, right? Brainy X, we have a lot. We have some math scientists in our company, you know, the math scientists from here working our company, especially in Shanghai campus. He needs someone to always usher him 
you know, go to the toilet and come back. <laughs> it's very difficult. He's, he's, he's always thinking about innovation. He's, he's a mad scientist. Uh, and all of these are brain eggs. So these people around that we will have a teamwork. So innovation is just not only you yourself. It's, a, it's all about the teamwork together. So this framework is, uh, sh is sharing with you whether or not you are studying and looking at this, how do we commercialize the product. And then you're very biased for incremental innovation towards that. And getting the concept into the marketplace, you try to avoid market risks, answer questions, verify solutions, do things right, value capture. This is what normally people do. Yeah. There's nothing wrong about this, but on the other side, if you see, why don't we start with a mindset of value creation? Why don't we start with the end in mind, that is how can we deliver value to the consumers in a way that you start to think that how can I find the right things? How can I ask questions to explore the unknown? How can we look at unmet need in the marketplace? How can, see, how can we seize the opportunities, visualize the future and consider all options, not just only one direction? And then you're looking at the incremental and radical innovations in place. So it's not just only radical, not just only incremental, you do both because you need to survive, but at the same time you need to create value. In business, I already, always worried about being to survive. I'm in the survival game. How do I survive? So I'm looking at the short term is really a cash flow. I need to really bring dollars into the company in order to survive. In the midterm, I'm looking at how can we make some money. In the long term, you're looking at how can we create value of your brand or your company. So you really need to do both just not only incremental or radical, then you are able to create a value in a long-term, short-term, and mid-term, or at the same time. So these motivators help also to create the innovation center, innovation culture in place. You really need to have the passion in place in innovation. You really need to make some economic sense in place. You need to have the vision. You need to recognize the people who are doing innovation. So the motivation needs to be in place. Then people will be able to engage innovation activities because of expected economic returns. So in Chic, we do reward our people on innovation, very big time. We reward people in Chic about the innovations. Trust that they will be appropriately recognized based on the merit, which is another thing that you always need to do. It uh, doesn't really cost you money, but you, you have to really recognize them and encourage them to talk about this. Because if the scientists at the first place didn't talk to me about the technology, the cost-saving technology, we won't have these radical changes in this technology in place. The vision that provides a clear sense of purpose and includes the passion about the activities. So you really need to encourage the passion in place. Our HR and the leaders in the company should always work together, this is what I say, together to design the right measurements and reward system that motivates our staff for innovation. So this is a culture that you, you create in a company in order to foster innovation all, all the time. Again, it's this incentive is in place, not just only incentive, you need to measure innovation in place. So you have the input, you have the process and your output, so you need to really measure the outcome. It's not just only incentivize them, so EVA in our company is the blood. Uh, innovation should always become the pump, I always say, for the tomorrow's growth in the company. And EVA is the economic 
uh, economic value added in place. So this is the shareholder value. So innovation is a real study, and real case studies, you see that uh, uh, we started with the technology, the idea about uh, food processing technology, and then we get into this technology, which is a machinery. But machinery cannot really deliver the innovation that we have. But then we look at the run. And I was in the United States, my North American market manager was telling me that the coconut water is a really hot thing in this market. It's growing every year of doubling. So this is about two and three years ago. I was looking at that as a coconut water, and then we started to do a market research. We did a very in-depth market research. Then we, I found out how much value this coconut was bringing to the people here and in the, all around the world. And then we had a vision. Then why cannot we put coconut water into this technology and it becomes a game-changing product? Here we go, we have this product. So you crack open a coconut shell and it just to suck the water out, put into this bottle becomes very convenient. This is acetonic water, it's very good to the health. So with that in place, uh, I also would like to say one thing which is very important. When we do innovation, we're always looking at what is the value proposition to the consumers based on time saving. Today, you look at that, uh, your, what, what is the most valuable thing to you today? Time, which is, you cannot, which is something you cannot buy easily. Time will go away, and when you say now, it's already in the past. So you see now, it's already in the past. So time is so precious today. And this coconut water is trying to save time for people who want to get the best product where this gives you a longer life. But if you go to Thailand yourself, you bring a coconut water here, and you crack that open, all the effort and time, even you go to Whole Foods, you buy a coconut, you go home, what are you going to do with coconut? How do you crack that open and put a straw in it? By the time you finish that, you don't want to drink that anymore. And then people ask me, does you have a com competition? I said, what is competition? He said, this is your competition. I said, no, this is not my competition. <laughs> I asked him a question. How many coconuts you can store in your refrigerator? And how many times, when each time you bring these coconut come out, how much time you need to drink that coconut water? This is a ready-made product. This is a product that you can bring out from refrigerator and you drink that right away. I'm not doing any advertisement. By the way, this is called Ingvo. <laughs> so I'm here to show you a... Uh, uh, from there, what we did is, uh, is a product coming out. Ingvo Coconut Water. For the true, freshly cracked coconut water experience. Our little world started in the sunny country of Spain, the land of juicy fruits and vegetables. Craving for more sunny flavors, our taste buds brought us to the country of Siam, better known as Thailand, where we discovered something really amazing, the true, freshly cracked coconut water experience. So, what makes our coconut water so fresh and special? Well, we just use 100% pure coconut water. And in our blends, we add some freshly squeezed juices, nothing else. Did you know we're one of the world's first to harvest, crack, bottle, and then cold craft coconut waters by applying pressure? 
and all of that in the heart of Thailand's coconut groves. Invoke coconut water for the true freshly cracked coconut water experience. Proudly and lovingly made in Thailand. Well, Invo is a brand that we bought from Spain. That's why this video was made based on a background of uh, Spanish. Spanish people don't understand coconut water at all. They have no habit of drinking coconut water. When we first launched the product in the marketplace, it became very hot. And our first container of coconut water became all pink because the, the, there is a chemical name that I cannot say about that, which is very good to your health. If coconut turning pink is actually becoming more antioxidant-based. So we then marketed product in Spain saying that you are very lucky that you get coconut water pink and because the taste is so good, so it sent very well. I was in the marketplace the other day, about um, a month ago. I was asking store manager. Uh, he was ordering our product. I said, do you, do you think this is a good product to you? He said, it's a very good product. Then I said, do you think this is a very good product, or is this just only a good product? He, he said, this is the best seller in my produce area. This is Spain. That's Spain. This is not the United States. Now we are selling this product in the United States, in Whole Foods, in Trader Joe's, in a lot of natural channels is in, in place. And because the taste is so good, people like that. Invo product, the brand is a brand that we, are, we were applying and implementing our global strategy. Our global strategy is called mosquito strategy. Now, being a newcomer to the marketplace, you can come to the marketplace to sell coconut water under big brands. Or you can start your own brand. We chose in between. So what we do is we go to the marketplace, we would just buy a regional brand like Invo. Invo is a regional brand in Madrid, which is the best brand in Madrid. Everybody knows Invo. Uh, the name is coming from in its original version. It's a Spanish name. So something to, to do with the TV, you know, I, I, I believe some of you know that. So that's a brand established already in Madrid, and we bought this brand. We bought, at first place, it was about 51%, and now we own 75% of the brand. In the end of the day, we are looking at own 100% of the, the ownership of the brand. So what we do is we go to a different market, we will buy a regional brand, and then we'll leverage that brand with this product in unput product under the brand and sell in the marketplace. Because the brand is so well known in the marketplace, it starts to sell very well in the marketplace. And I call it the mosquito is because we have a plan to build up a house of brands that probably will have about 50 brands all over the world. These are all very small individual brands, but very strong in the marketplace. And then we come in, these, all of these small little mosquitoes will be able to deal with the big elephants. That's Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is the biggest company, uh, or Pepsi-Cola is also a very big company in juice business. They have a house of brands that's already built up. So in order to compete with them, you have to have a good product. You have to have the fighters in the marketplace. That's all the mosquitoes that's in place. Invo is the first brand, and we are looking at the moment. I cannot announce to you that how many brands that we are looking at. We are looking at a, quite a lot of brands all over the world. 
So it's, again, it's a business model change. It's not just only come in to sell coconut water on a private label or sell coconut water to other brands like big brands as uh, you know, Coca-Cola's brands. There are Tropicana or Simply Orange. These are all the brands that are looking after these coconut water business. We are not doing that. We are creating our own market uh, with this mosquito strategy. So you're looking at this innovation is not just only looking at products again. You're looking at more of all of these things all together. We landed on innovation in such a place as we are not only looking at the product and R&D. Uh, coconut water is, the, uh, is, is one example. But we are also looking at a business model and supply chain. So globalization is not only just looking at selling coconut water in one market, but this is selling coconut water to all of the market. Product is made in Thailand, and then is sold in the marketplace. This is a multi-to-multi-trading business model. And then services is really different. We are looking at coconut water made, processed in Thailand, sold in the global market, but services are provided in Shanghai. The campus that I showed you is a campus is providing all the services, all the customer services, supply chain management services, all the things is going through Shanghai. So... The reason we do it in Shanghai is because Shanghai provides the best service, but at the same time, the cost is lower. And we are not doing that in the United States, we are not doing it in Europe, and we cannot do it in Thailand because the language level in Thailand is not in place. So you're looking at a total supply chain change is also another way to look at this innovation. Finally, I'm looking at how do we optimize alignment to drive the growth, which is around innovation. The innovation can really start from anywhere. And we said that the innovation started with that idea. But this alignment is the most important thing. So when you look at the innovation, you really need to start with the business goal and strategy in place, which is aligned together with your strategy, your innovation strategy, and then you deliver on these innovation operational models. That model has to be aligned to get what is your innovation strategy. And finally, you get into delivering of this innovation. If you start with the wrong place to go, you will never get to there. So you really need to start with the end in mind on innovation. So how you innovate determines what you really can innovate. Back to the three questions. Uh, first question is, why cannot companies develop strong and effective innovation? My answer is they are unwilling and unable to fix what is broken and or underperforming. Companies, a lot of companies often don't want to look at that. They are unwilling to do this. Look at iPhone. Look at iPad today. What are they replacing? So many different industries are being, they are being killed by iPhone and iPad. But those industries never thought about that, never wanted to think about this. Why do companies find it so hard to sustain robust levels of innovation? Because they use an outdated strategy and operational model for innovation. Now, how do leaders create meaningful levels of innovation? My answer is they manage innovation as if future growth depends on it, because it really it does. This is very much reflecting on Sheik. What would we always keep in mind when we make innovation work in Chic is we look at these sustainable strategic competitive advantages. Sustainable meaning that you have to put a business in there which has got this mode in place 
the barrier of entry in place. Strategic is because you are dealing with the competition. Your competition always comes where you don't realize it's so fast coming. So you have to really think about how strategically you move. And of course, the last that you have to have the competitive advantage in place. Thank you very much. Edward, uh, thank you. Uh, really a fascinating uh, uh, discussion of innovation in your, uh, in your company. And what I'd like to do now, uh, if it's all right with you, we take a few minutes. Uh, you and I can uh, talk about some questions, uh, one or two questions, and then we'll open it up to the audience and, okay. and uh, ask them for their comments and questions as well. So um, <clears throat> my first question uh, relates to some of the fascinating conversations that you and I have had over the past couple years about uh, not only business issues, innovation, new technology, and so on, but your involvement in thinking outside of the business context and even more broadly to regional economic development and uh, rural urbanization in, in China. And you have been a very thoughtful commentator on the evolution of agribusiness in, in China. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and to invite you to share with the, the group here. Uh, the, what, what is the state of agribusiness in China? How is it moving from the old traditional system of very small plots of peasant farmers to a more efficient, more mature agribusiness sector that is better positioned to meet the needs of people in China with respect to food and health and nutrition? Yeah. I, I think this really starts with uh, issues and problems, uh, problems again. Uh, you look at China in the last 30 years, China has been growing its economy, and one sector has been always neglected that is on the agriculture side. So agriculture, peasants, and uh, uh, way behind uh, declining villages in place. So it became a very big issue, uh, which is not sustainable, and it creates a lot of problems on food safety, food security and sustainability. So these are all very big issues, and the Chinese government has been very worried about these and trying to put a reform in place. One of the things that we came up with as a solution to the central government is that the land in China needs to be aggregated in order for technology to be applied. So today's individual small-scale farming, look at Chinese small-scale peasants they own one six in an acre. One six is an acre, and you have about 229 million Chinese peasants. How can you manage 229 million Chinese peasants in a way that you can manage food safety in place? You cannot. There's no country, there's no government can handle 229 million competitors in one place. Have you seen any market as competitive as Chinese agriculture business? No. You have 229 million. So each one wants to cut the corner. When each one wants to cut the corner, food safety is not in place. That's why foods grown and processed in China is not perceived to be safe. This is why China is importing so much from the United States today, which is very good to this country, to the agriculture sector in California. But it's not very sustainable. 
So I think in the future that this is a solution, as I said, that our company is a solution-based, is a semis company. We've provided this solution to the Chinese government. So one way you look at that is you have to really release the land from the rural area. The farmland needs to be aggregated where technology, large-scale farming can be put in place. And you look at the farmhouse land in place. The farmhouse land are the farmhouse stat in place that farmers or peasants in China claim ownership. In reality, they don't have ownership of these lands. These land can be then released from the marketplace. And when we release these land to the marketplace, the incremental GDP growth in the next 10 years can be 56 trillion RMB. If you take 10% of that, it's more than 10% of the GDP growth every year. So you put that all together, it's, it's economically that you know that uh, this will drive value. The drive, the value that is driven outside from this flow, free flow of resources from the rural area together with the talent and the money from the urban area creates a lot of opportunities in place. So then we will be then able to do a reform on the agriculture side and then also to deal with the declining village because we will be then build up a new urban city, new urban towns around in the rural area. It's not just pushing all the people going into the big cities, which is not very sustainable. And then you look at the changes of the position of the peasants. These peasants will be then converted to professional workers or business owners. And these peasants will get paid by selling their land. At the moment, their land has got no value at all. At the moment, the value is not there because the land is not deeded. So these three rural issues in place, if we put a rounded solution in place, I see the rural area will have a very big change. But it's all very much around the land. I've, I've been um, very impressed with your big vision about agribusiness in, in, in China. And, and I've also been struck by what I perceive to be your motive being not purely commercial. Um, you have a very successful business. Your work in agribusiness is certainly improving that sector in China. But there's, there's something more about what you're doing, Edward. So there's some other motive, some other motivation, some other inspiration about what you're trying to achieve. So what, what is that? What else drives you beyond that commercial incentive? Well, I, I think I'm, uh, I, I admit that I'm a, uh, uh, the, the terrible thing in me is I'm very greedy. I'm always fighting, try to fight against my greed and my ego all the, play, all, all the time. So I'm always thinking about how can I use my ego and my uh, greed in, in a place where, in the long run, create some value to the people, to the people in the world, not just only create a people, create value to Chinese people. So, like you said, that we, I have made some money, and that there is no reason for me to continue making that money because I did that already. And in the next generations of generations of my family, we don't have to worry about money. So that's the problem. So, and then, the problem, really. Yeah. 
So now I'm thinking, you know, how can I do something better? Instead of you know, giving money away uh, when I get old, uh, you can do charity. You know, you just write checks to, to people. And why can't we just create a sustainable value creation model in the way that we can help the bottom of the pyramid? Instead of the giving money away, why don't we create a, a sustainable uh, way in a way that uh, the system by itself is always bringing value? to the bottom of the pyramid, where these integrated rural urbanization create such a, can create such a great model that the value can be created in the marketplace, and this value will then, in the system, to benefit those people on the bottom of the pyramid. Of course, the whole pyramid it will benefit from there. Uh, so this is the, probably the reason. You know, I try, trying to put my energy in the right place, otherwise it will be trouble. Well, I, I, I actually th don't think you're very greedy. I think you're actually very thoughtful about how, the impact that you're having, not only with your business and the jobs you're creating there, the products you're developing that we all enjoy, and I am enjoying the coconut water, by the way. <laughs> you're free to uh, have a taste. It's very good, yeah. But you're trying to do something more, and I think that's one of the points that I wanted to get across tonight to this group. Not only uh, providing you as a case example of a very successful businessman, but someone who is mindful of, of um, responsible business practices, corporate social responsibility. What is the role of business in broader society, and how can you help elevate broader prosperity beyond just the jobs you create and the products you uh, create, and that's one of the reasons why we're so yeah. thrilled to have you speak tonight Thank to you. us. So so let's change gears a little bit and, and talk about another topic that I know that you have thought deeply about, and that is the development of business and management talent. So tell us about what you're seeing in China with respect to trends in the, both the demand and the supply of talent? What are, the chi what are the challenges faced in China there? And what can we do in the United States to partner with, to participate with, to learn from, to teach our friends in China? Yeah, I think globalization really changed the whole thing in China. Um, you look at globalization shifted from Japan and then it went to Four Dragons and then it went to four tigers, and then finally landed in, in China. For the last 30 years, China became very successful by exporting products out from China to the United States, to the world. It's very much, very much based on the low labor component in China. Throughout this change that you see China has been training a lot of talented managers in this position, being a global manufacturer, so you go to China today, you can easily find a lot of talents in manufacturing. But as I said, the one area which is always neglected is in the agriculture area. Because I don't think that China had ever had agriculture. The agriculture that you talk about here is totally different from the agriculture that you look at China. Because that individual small-scale farming is not really agriculture. Chinese peasants still use buckets to irrigate their fields because this is only one-sixth an acre. How can that be sustainable? They're very old. They're 60 years old, 70 years old. I have pictures with someone who's 80 years old still working in the field. What if they died? What is the next? Their children would never want to come back 
to the farm area, to the field. So if we can solve the problem of the land issue in the future, that if the land can be freely flow together, connected with the capital from the market and the talents from the city, I see the next biggest bottleneck will be the talent in the agriculture area. Because the future farmer will be totally different from these peasants. But there is no such a future farmer because there, is no, there was no agriculture. So the schools in China, that Bill has been visiting a lot of Chinese schools in China, Chinese agriculture schools in China, has been always training managers or scholars or scientists on paper. They're very good on paper. They write papers. They can copy papers from air. <laughs> so often you find these people coming over to work for you. They are not creating value, but they are damaging value for you. You have to be very careful, and you have to hire someone to watch them instead of they can deliver value. So that's why you see that UC Davis is a school that's been always working very closely with industries, your extension programs, for example work very closely with industries in the, in the way that the school of GSM and UC Davis has been creating a lot of value to the industry, to the leaders here, to the owners of the business. That, I see, is a totally different model of training and education because you are not just there to write a paper. You're helping to create value. That's what China needs. China needs a school like UC Davis and GSM of UC Davis to really can deliver value in China to train the Chinese new leaders in agriculture that will help China to change. And if this layer of talent is not in place, China will never be able to change. Because today, you go to China, look at a lot of uh, agriculture leaders in there. They have never been agriculture. China is looking at agriculture today is just to dig a hole and put a tree in there. That's agriculture. Yeah, they never look at the yield. Now, we have a lot of Chinese students here that you know that, right? What is the yield compared to here? The corn yield in China is about a half. The soybean is about 40% of the United States. How can you have agriculture in this way? I'm, lo I'm, I'm already looking at a business to business. I'm not looking at the peasants level. The peasants level is even more because you're looking at per capita, how much they grow. So this is not sustainable. So the bottleneck is really the talent in place. And I'm very happy to see a lot of Chinese people, a lot of Chinese face here. And you are lucky that you are here and you're learning so much from this, con this country and this university. This university is, very, is the top school in agriculture. And China, in the next 10 and 15 years, is all about agriculture, I tell you. It's all about agriculture. It's all about the land to be released from the rural areas. So you are lucky, and then I welcome you to come back to China. So speaking of who's with us here tonight, let's open it up now and uh, uh, hear your questions or comments, things that you'd like uh, Edward to comment on. And we have a microphone. We're, we're videotaping, so if you could uh, raise your hand, stand up, and Diana's going to bring the microphone over to you so we can ensure that we capture your, uh, your question. Tell us who you are as well. 
Oh, I'm a first year student in uh, MBA and GSM. Um, thank you for your brilliant presentation about innovation, how, how uh, the ways of innovation in your company. Uh, but I think most of our uh, talking about is about innovations on the consumer side. But I think back in China, as you had just uh, expressed concerns about those patents and the agriculture industry in China. But I think the most important thing is the innovation and the mechanism, especially how to organize resources, inputs side. Uh, and I know that you, Sheikh uh, Hesse, or uh, have thousands of acres of land in China. So I really want to know how do you organize those resources, especially land and workforces? So um, I want to add something, uh, especially now in China, in rural area, we can uh, use a word, simple word to uh, describe this situation that is a cow, C-O-W. C means uh, children, O means older people, and uh, women. So how do you organize those? Uh, how do you um, manage uh, this kind of problem in the future, especially? Thank you really need innovation in there. <laughs> you really need a lot of innovation in place, more than this product innovation. Because we look at the situation, like you say, this is in a cow situation. And also, you're looking at your P&L, your cost structure is totally different from the peasants when they do farming. The peasants do not have leasing costs of the land because they get the land to use for free. A company comes in, we have to pay leasing. The peasants in China becomes a landlord. You know, in Chinese, it's called a dizu, landlord. So it's the opposite. It's totally changed their position. And the peasants in China do not count their labor as a cost. If you look, you ask them, what is your cost? They never look at their labor cost as a cost. But we have to hire workers to come in to our farm. So we have to pay. So that's a cost. The peasants normally do not talk about profit. The reason they don't talk about profit is because it's very hot. You know, it's very much dependent on the weather depends on the climate. Well, company cannot do that. I call it the operational failure if you don't look at that because we have a high fixed cost. Our structure is different. We have a very high fixed cost. We wanted to save the cost on the variable cost side. So the cost and variable cost, the fixed cost and variable cost as a structure is different from the farmers or the peasants in there. They have no fixed cost. They only have variable costs. So they don't have this issue, what I call it, operational failure in place. So to manage them, and you want to also compete with them because their cost is so low. And when, whenever you grow anything, they can grow the same thing because there is no secret. Because your variety can be taken away next day. And one example I'll show you that we have a blueberry orchard in Shandong in Jinan. Last year, overnight, 30,000 trees of blueberry, all gone, overnight. Overnight. Next day, you see the trucks. So a team of trucks came. Overnight, all the blueberry trees are all gone because of the variety that they believe that we have the best variety. So they took all away. How do you deal with that? So you have competitors. It's all there. These are peasants. It's all your competitors. Don't you think you need innovation? 
to get a success, and we have been quite successful. So you do not want to compete with them. You want to become one of them. You become friends of them. So you work together with them. We provide services. We provide technologies. We help them to grow. We help them to grow and bring their yield up, and we buy from them. So our farm is a demonstration farm. This demonstration farm is always there to teach the farmers. And we build up the relationship in such a way that they always make 70% of the margin, and we always make 30% of the margin. You don't look at Chinese peasants to say they are not trained, educated, so you can make 70% of the margin and they make 30%, that will never work. If they found out, you have a big trouble. <laughs> so the mechanism you put in place is really that you need to do is to think that how can you make them to make the most of the money? And you make less, but they are just the one individual. We have hundreds of millions of farmers working for us. Of course we make more money. You see what I mean? We make on the volume, they make on the margin, which is a percentage. Ended up that we make more money. And then at the same time, you see that how can we control them in a way that they will give us high quality and safe product? Another innovation to share with you. So we put them in a group. We have a GPS system, we circle them. We say, this is 24 of peasants in place, is a one place. If any one of them gives us a product which is not safe or overuse of pesticide or use the wrong pesticide, because in China today, 70% of the pesticide applied in the field is all fake. So we say that any one of them of 24 use the wrong pesticide because they want to save money, costs, right? And we will put this farmer on the blacklist. Not only him, 24 of them is all on blacklist. We will never buy from these 24. You know what will happen? I don't have to worry anymore because they are watching each other. If one of them is using a wrong pesticide, that guy got beat so much by the rest of the 23 farmers in place. So we have someone helping and protecting us. This is another innovation to share with you. If you don't have innovation, you can never work in China with such a competition of 229 million peasants in place, and you have to make money. I hope you, I, I get your question I answered. No, that's, that's a very important uh, principle that, that Edward is talking about, about trying to conceive of a business model that uh, continues to respect and show dignity for the peasants. I mean, these are um, people with very modest means, uh, little education, and I, I, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, and I would urge you to continue to, through this really dramatic evolution process in the industry and in agribusiness in China, to try to treat them in a way that is uh, respectful. And uh, that's a very important business principle that uh, I'm really delighted to see you displaying. Pat, let's have your question. 
for that. For, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, Pat Conrad, I'm the Associate Dean for Global Programs in the School of Veterinary Medicine. And I wasn't familiar with that acronym, children, older people, and women. Um, so when you say cow to us, we think of the kind that produce milk. Um, and, uh, and I just wondered if you would share with us, um, as you're talking about these land policies and all, I assume that a lot of that has to do with plant agriculture. And I'd just like to get your thoughts on, on animal agriculture in China and the innovations that are taking place or should be taking place in, in that space. I think animal side is better. It's developing uh, in a much better environment because animal you're talking about, the land is, can be closed. The plant is really vast and it's not closed. So you can really, today you look at that, you can apply technologies to the animal science, same place, husband boundary, aquatic, you know, these areas are very well developed. I, I don't see China's two way behind of the United States on animals. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the industries, for example, the dairy industries is still scattered, that you have a lot of small individual farmers raising small number of uh, uh, dairy cows in place. That's a very big issue. But you do have big companies, they are driving the forces. It's now in a very good uh, process to change. Uh, but still takes a long time to get there. In that industry that I see the China's way behind still today is really the food processing side. It's on the meat processing, on dairy processing, is really way behind of the United States. Uh, you may not agree with me, because uh, you hear so much about the scandals uh, on the meat in China. But compared to the plant, this is much better. So it's, everything is relatively uh, that you're talking. Right? So the plant side is really an issue. Uh, but the, you look at the animal side, is really in a better position. Uh, but more uh, on the food processing side, I, that's why I see that UC Davis can add so much value in China for food processing. And you understand that recently the, the acquisition of a Smithfield is very much about feeding and satisfying the demand in China. And is also looking at the product that, that they make that China cannot make. So that's, you know, two-sided. I hope that I, I, I answer your question, yes. Okay, let's have one more question. This gentleman right back here. Uh, Wataru Yoshimura, first-year candidate, or MBA candidate. And uh, this whole time you've been talking about innovation. And so as a first-year candidate, we're learning a lot about the strategy. And one of the things you mentioned earlier in your three questions was that uh, a lot of these strategies are outdated. And we've been learning about these five forces and SWAT. You know, what are these things, or what about uh, these old strategies are so stifling to innovation now? And what can you, like, speak on behalf of that? I think when you talk about strategy, you first ask a question, why do you need a strategy? Can you uh, answer my question first? Why do you need a strategy? When do you need a strategy? Uh, if I say that I want to walk from here to outside of the room here, do I need a strategy? Sure. <laughs> like, you need why do you I need to a understand strategy? that you need to go there. You see, you see me walking out of this door? If someone were to block your way? You know. Now you said something. If someone is blocking my way, I need a strategy. That's correct. You answer my question. So if somebody is blocking your way in the business, 
What is that? Uh, competition. Competition. You need strategy because you have competition. Competition is always there creating problems. That's why you need a strategy. How many companies today think about that? When they do innovation, they don't think about that. They don't think about the long term. They don't think about the midterm. They only think about short term. So when they answer the question of a short term, they do incremental innovations in place. In the way they are doing their surviving game. So they only look at how can they survive. But they are not looking at a long term, how can really they can have the sustainable development to win and continuously win. That's a big difference. So when you look at the outdated strategy, the outdated strategy is always looking at a product change in order for them to live. But then we say it's a new strategy is looking at not just, on, it's like a balanced scorecard. You're not just only looking at 12 months. You're looking at short term, five years. We call it five years short term, okay? And eight years of the midterm and 10, 15 years of the long term. So when you go start with your innovation, with your end, with an end of 15 years in mind, that's totally different. In this market, especially in the United States, capital market is always driving a company looking at very short term. That very short term is an issue. You're always looking at your P&L. You're looking at your P&Ls. How do you drive your business up and your revenue up in a very short term? So you don't look outside of the box. This is where you, you, you had... Steve Jobs here, he came. He was playing with an idea. That idea has such a great dramatic change that you didn't realize at the first place. And he didn't even go out to ask his consumers towards the consumers of the Apple computer. He was not asking questions to those consumers because his new consumers is totally different. So that's new strategy. I hope I answer your question. Thank you very much. So, Edward, uh, really fascinating. It's really been a pleasure to have you. Very illuminating about innovation, about China, about agribusiness. So we want to thank you very much for your remarks and your very thoughtful answers to the questions as well. So shall we thank Edward? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.